welcome to the BSSH Sporting History Podcast, uh, brought to you by the British Society of Sport History in association with the Institute of Historical Research. I'm your host for this week, uh, Geoffrey Levitt, or rather I'm your co-host, as this week um, is a special podcast. It's the first of a series of interviews given by Connor Heffernan. Connor is the BSSH's postgraduate and early career rep, and at the moment Connor is based at the uh, University of Texas at Austin, uh, where he is the Assistant Professor in Physical Culture and Sports Studies. And Connor is going to do a series of interviews for us, I hope, um, with American academics. And this week, he's talking to Alec Hurley. Alec is a scholar who researches uh, the history of rowing in the 19th century, so it's a nice little foray into the 19th century this week. And he also mentions the research of Lisa Taylor, who was a previous podcast guest and her research into British women's rowing. So let's go over to uh, Texas and hear how Connor got on talking to Alec. So this is the inaugural BSSH podcast across the pond in the Atlantic, and no better person to speak to than Alec Hurley from the University of Texas at Austin. So Alec is a graduate student in the School of Physical Culture and Sports Studies, in the Department of Kinesiology. So I'll introduce Alec by asking him, what is he studying at the moment? Um, thank you, Connor. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. I didn't realize I was the inaugural one. So I will, a special guest. I will try to, to honor the position with which I have been appointed. Um, yes, as you mentioned, I'm a, I'm a third-year PhD in the Physical Culture and Sports Studies program at uh, the University of Texas at Austin. My... Research broadly as a track focuses on sport and empire, uh, which I like because it doesn't necessarily tie me down to geography or to era. Um, the dissertation work, uh, pending of course passing the comprehensive exams and approval by Thomas Hunt and, <laughs> and uh, Jan Todd, will be uh, on a transcultural development of the German Empire's emergence around 1875 to 1900, uh, looking at uh, the role of rowing, sort of co-opting cultural elements from, uh, from England and from Germany, and how that mirrored uh, the German socio-political emergence of the same time. So how did you get involved or interested in this topic? So I remember being at a conference two years ago two, years, two ago. years ago were you speaking about rowing or not rowing is uh, I was cricket in India cricket in India yes. yeah that's right that's so Winnipeg. How, how have you pivoted from <laughs> cricket in India to the German Empire and rowing and transcultural is, sporting phenomena that is a good question and one which I'm not particularly certain of the answer um, so that piece originally was done in honor of a former classmate of mine when I was leaving Philadelphia um, several years ago, a rowing magazine had popped up at the cigar shop where I was working retail at the time, and we were both world historians hmm. uh, from Villanova, and we somehow got to talking about, isn't it strange how he was humoring me in trying to figure out this whole sport history thing, isn't it interesting how certain sports 
emerge in different locations, even within the same colonial empire. So here's talking specifically about Britain, mm. and yet, you know, in in places like Canada and Australia, you have, you know, rowing and football are massive sports, whereas in places like India or the West Indies, which is probably not an appropriate term anymore, um, the Caribbean, you don't get that. You know, you see uh, the emergence of cricket um, and sort of the infusion of more traditional sports, certainly, you know, the Indian wrestling mm-hmm. and sort of the more traditional uh, club sports. Um, and why certain ones took off and certain ones didn't, because, of course, you know, in India, you have a tremendous amount of rivers. So the idea was, well, why didn't rowing take off? It certainly seems like they have the infrastructure to do these sorts of things. Egypt was another one that popped up. Why isn't rowing in Egypt um, more expensive considering the massive body of water that exists mm-hmm. around the, the municipalities? Um, and so uh, that paper was presented sort of in homage to him. My first presentation I was going to give was going to sort of bring him along with me to a certain extent. Um, and it was a nice way to... The original paper that I wrote for Jan was, let's say, insufficient at best. Um, so it was a chance for me to sort of get back on her good side and demonstrate that I could actually do the archival research necessary to, to make it in the program. And it was a good paper. Thank you. Uh, it was Thank a very you. good paper and it was uh, very well done. But it's interesting to think from cricket in India now to... To rowing in, in to Germany. To rowing in Germany. Yeah. Um, I had always wanted to avoid rowing. Okay. Um, so again, for <laughs> you, those... You've done a bad job of that. Yeah, I really have. Um, for, those, for those listening, I was a rowing coach for nine years. You know, like everyone who almost made it, you know, you're a phone call away from making a national team, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I never wanted to be labeled a rowing historian. Mm. I figured that was maybe fairly limiting in job prospects, um, unless there's any anybody in England hiring, in which case, yes, I'm a <laughs> rowing historian. This is um, actually a job interview more than anything else. Yeah. Um, and I became interested in Germany because I was interested in different forms of identity and sort of the multiple personalities that, that empire and identity can impose upon a population. But I was never particularly interested in the sort of post-colonial dialogue. Hmm. Um, as fascinating as that is, I was more interested in looking at, at uh, more the power dynamics, the dominant structures of the time. You know, the subaltern is not a, an area that holds a particular interest to me. But understanding how different subcultures or repressed identity can foster under the surface and then sort of explode onto the onto the main scene is something that does interest me hmm. and Germany to me is fascinating because you have this one geographic area for lack of a better term that has gone under an incredible amount of identical shifts or identity shifts over the last let's say 150 160 years um, you know so the the notion that, oh, we know Germany, and Germany has been around for so long, mm. is at best inaccurate. You know, I mean, the Germany that we know really has only existed for 30 years, yeah. you know. Um, and, of course, you had the era of the two Germanys, and you had the Weimar Republic, and we don't need to go over all of that now. But it just fascinated me that what we understand as German is not actually German, to a, you know, to a certain extent. And... So I'm like, 
I was interested in that, but I really was not interested in 20th century history. Hmm. It was a little too modern for me um, in my pretentious tastes. <laughs> uh, a, a friend once told me studying the 20th century was journalism, not history. I've always, I've always equated it to political science. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, which... Not that there's anything wrong with that. Right, which, uh, is, which is all well and good. Um, but for someone who has, who has studied older history, you know, that, from, that's where you wanted to quote your it's where I wanted, it's where I wanted to go. And of course that's difficult because sporting records pre 1850 are, let's go with spotty at best. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and as you and I were joking before coming on, uh, trying to read German script before 1850 is even more challenging. <laughs> um, and it actually took until the spring of 2018, and I was sitting in a lecture with Tommy Hunt, ironically about cultural issues in American sport, uh, and he sort of offhand mentioned that the 19th century is fairly understudied as it relates to, to sport history in comparison to 20th century yeah. type of work. And all of a sudden, this little light bulb went off, I'm like, oh, well, I like the 19th century anyway, so let's... <laughs> Let's kind of dive in. Um, and then over, over the summer of 2018, I, I sort of did a deep dive into the literature and, mm. and reading Horst Überhorst and Roland Noll and uh, some of Annette Hoffman and I believe a little bit of Gertrude Pfister and you know, all of these sort of um, dominant European scholars, Germanic scholars. Uh, Neil Wigglesworth for English Rowing, of course. There's something here. Yeah, I, I found out that the second oldest rowing club in the world is located in in Germany. Mm. Um, you know, to clarify, obviously for the British listeners, yes, you know the the colleges at, at Oxbridge came first, but in terms of like sort of separate non-university affiliated club, uh, Der Hamburger und Germania Ruder Club is the second oldest to Leander in in London. Um, I'm like, well, that's that's interesting. Sort of rewrites the narrative a little bit to yeah. a certain extent. And to sort of cut the rambling short uh, or shorter, uh, I was never particularly satisfied with the rhetoric that sport in England emerged constitutionally. And I'm, you know, I'm sure that's, mm. that's probably an accurate reading. But it seems that sport in Europe, at least from some of the works written in English, is always sort of written as a counter to English, to Anglo-American mm. sport. Um, that, oh, if it was done in a democratically club-oriented system in England, the United States, and Canada, then clearly it must have been military-based on the continent. France, Sweden, mm. Germany, the different gymnastic styles, what have you. And there is some truth to that. You know, there's not, we're not going to deny... Prussian gymnastics, we're not going to deny the Ling system in Sweden, mm. understandable. But to overlook some of the transcultural boating clubs and athletic clubs that took place in the north of France and in northern Germany, I think remove a tremendous element to understanding sort of the, the uh, truly international and transcultural understandings of sport in the mid 19th century and so that's what I'm trying to shed light on through my dissertation yeah. and in terms of how rowing gets to Germany is this the kind of well-worn like 
British merchants there is, travel over, bring our students yes, traveling back. There is a, a tremendous amount of that. So there were, um, which makes sense why it's in Hamburg. Yeah, it's, a, yeah. it's an incredible uh, port city at the time. Um, and of course, uh, at the time when, when it would have emerged in the early 1830s, there were a couple of factors which gave rise to it or allowed rowing to foster mm-hmm. at an early stage. One of them was uh, uh, the king of, I believe, the Prussian leader at the time had put a ban on the turn-in movement. Mm. Um, I believe it was mid-1820s to roughly the 1840s. You can argue how strict, how, how but strict it was, general... but you know, it was at least on the books, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and of course, you know, sort of the enemy of the, my enemy is my friend, and so because there were in rather constant conflict with the French. Of course, you had, you know, a willing partner in the English. Um, and so what, what you had was the emergence of, of football um, coming over. You certainly had these, these merchants who were coming over, and there were, um, from some early records that I've looked at, uh, incomplete at the moment, but there were 11 British merchants to varying degrees of, of hierarchy who either had stayed in, in Hamburg or um, were there consistently enough that you know, they wanted to bring rowing over with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what is interesting about uh, the Hamburger Ruder Club, as it was known back then, it has since merged uh, with others, and it still exists today. Um, it still operates fully as a, as a functional boathouse. Um, is... Um, instead of creating a British-only space, you know, this is a place for us in another country, yeah. uh, they were able to merge with several, maybe even been 10, local Germans, and they built the club up simultaneously. And what happened was uh, the English simply, the English merchants provided examples of the constitutions that have been written at their boat clubs, the, you know, so a lot of the structure in the club is reminiscent of, of the English style. Almost lightly imported. Of course. Yeah. Um, but from all indications, the design of the club was an almost equal mixture of British and German voices yeah. building the club together. Um, another interesting element that, of course, is... is uh, at least from a from a perception standpoint, you know, rowing is you know for the haughty, obviously. Um, but because you know it was merchants who founded this, and it, it had a fairly strong workman's presence, mm. um, at the very least in its early stages, and you know it would ebb and flow throughout throughout the century. Um, and then of course one of the you know if we fast forward a little bit, and I've sort of mentioned this to you offhand before. Uh, the 1900 Olympics held in held in Paris, uh, in one of the strangest turnabouts, uh, had two grand finals for one of the men's rowing events, and the winner of one of them was Der Hamburger Ruder Club of Germany, and the other one was. Um, they were from France. I know that the oldest French boat club also had a boat in the race, but it escapes me at the moment whether they were uh, the winner of the other grand final or whether they were the boat that uh, uh, were behind the Germans in, in the other one. Uh, 
but regardless, it's a it's a fascinating understanding of you know these two emerging national powers sort of competing and vying for really global supremacy to whatever limited extent the 1900 yeah. Olympics offered within an English sport, which to me is is uh, the most pressing example of a transcultural expression uh, through sport. And how quickly does rowing kind of filter throughout Germany or where are the, the hotspots? In- so it's primarily, as should be no surprise, um, is heavily located in the Rhineland. Hmm. So you're, you're along the Rhine, so you see a lot of the early clubs emerging in uh, Dortmund, Essen, uh, Frankfurt, and Mainz uh, are fairly early uh, contributors to it. Um, I haven't seen a tremendous amount on Berlin yet, although I'm sure that's coming. Um, which is still uh, oh, uh, Cologne. Hmm. Excuse, pardon me. Uh, which today still is where the German national team trains right. out of. So they train out of these you know traditional spaces in Germany. You would have seen a great deal of them emerge towards the 1850s, 1860s, 1870s is when you would have seen a, a much larger rise in these clubs. Um, and of course, the, the DRV, the, the Deutsche Ruderverbund, is the oldest established uh, national federation, sporting federation in Germany. And it predates uh, the football association by at least a couple of years. I believe eighteen late eighteen eighties to early eighteen nineties. And in terms of the like German organization or influence, does the rich history of like the gymnastic movement in Germany, does any of that even the rhetoric filter into rowing or are they very separate? It so that's one of the things that the dissertation will look at is what I'm hoping to do. And of yeah. course this is always the best laid plans. We'll go to waste in the archives. Um but the, the working assumption based on the, the early research that I've gotten is that rowing acts as sort of, if we can pardon this sort of language, a, uh, a Hegelian synthesis of sorts, you know, and that it draws from the English structure and the English um, formality and yet also draws from this exceedingly German understanding of being outdoors and having this freedom and this sort of... Um, uh, the health of sort of raw strength and uh, you know sort of the beauty of movement of which rowing when done well offers at an extraordinarily high level so it, it offers the sort of the the structure and the inherent competition which the Germans were not big fans of at the time um, you know it was it was health for the sake of health they weren't mm. really competing in the way that we would understand it um, although there are certainly athletic competitions at you know to say nothing of uh, boxing and wrestling and things of that nature. But rowing seemed to offer a rather wonderful synthesis of these two cultures. And so as you read through um, the history of German sport clubs, the history of sport in German schools, what you get is that at various times over German history, either the Turners are banned, there's a, mm. there's a crackdown on English football and rugby in the 1870s, um, you all, we don't want to be too British. You know? But yet rowing seems to emerge unscathed 
through all of this. Um, and there are a couple of seminal moments, I think, you know, I was reading in, um, in Roland Nall and, and Ken Hardman's sort of compiled volume, they talk about rowing, because the, the rowing clubs at universities were student-run, as most were at the time. But it's often spoken about rowing offered the same line that's offered today. Oh, they're they're so mature. They're so you know they're so well di- organized. They're diligent. Um, you know the same line, of course, that we're being fed 120 years later. Yeah. Um, so clearly, there was a level of respect for the individuals that participated in this. Um, the fact, I think, that it was that it was outdoors, that it had a beauty element to it, that it possessed a rather creative manufactured element to it mm-hmm. as a lot of the current uh, top-end uh, equipment manufacturers hail from Germany. That um, I think there was a lot for the German population to grab onto and to make it their own rather than simply accepting a foreign sport. Mm-hmm. Um, and while it's never been king as, as the Turner movement was or as football has now become, uh, the argument I'm putting forward is that it's actually the most consistent form of German cultural identity in the sporting world. And it's been, to say it's been unchanged is inaccurate, but it has certainly been able to capture to a certain extent the changing nature of the German state while offering it a a level of consistency throughout. And just in terms of the German identity that's kind of reflected and expressed through rowing how does say like the rise of Bismarck and this kind of unification into a like a a monolithic German state does that influence the discourses or the conversations being had around rowing or to a certain degree yes um not rowing specifically as far as I'm concerned but certainly as far as the formalization of sport clubs in general Mm. at the time would have been you know, sort of subsumed under this larger German barrier, uh, barrier, uh, umbrella. Um, you'll have to forgive me. I taught four weightlifting classes earlier. Renaissance student. Student. Yeah. I'll tell you what. Teach lifting uh, weights, teach a German rowing. I'm telling you. Yeah. And I don't look like a guy that should be teaching weightlifting. Um, <laughs> thank goodness for my football undergraduate assistants. Um, to my knowledge, no. Um, in terms of, you know, the, there's not a tremendous decrease in clubs around Mm -hmm. the time that, the the Bismarck would have occurred. Um, there's probably some struggle between what had been the old Prussian clubs versus the old Bavarian clubs. You know, there's still a fairly tremendous amount of regional identity attached to the clubs. Um, although for the most part, it does seem to be a, uh, what we might call today a West German type of sport you know it's predominantly in the Rhineland of course that leads into all sorts of interesting questions of course about the dominant East Germans in the Mm. 1950s and 60s and 70s um, which of course is a bit beyond my purview and I do think that that they are owed um, a certain amount of study beyond the doping which is yeah um, the kind of dominant narrative precisely Um, there were a couple books in the Steinborn collection which we'll probably get a look at at some point once mm. comps are over <laughs> um, mainly out of sheer curiosity um, but uh, it was 
the only sort of dominant narrative that has come out about, you know, around the Bismarck era um, is that rowing seems to have escaped the purge of English sport okay. during, during this period, yeah. um, which in itself is interesting. So there's, there's sort of the understanding that if it's not mentioned, that's interesting in itself because it's not being aligned with the footballs or the rugby's or these sort of other, you know, to use a German phrase, uber-English activities that are clearly ruining the moral fabric of, of Germany. And I think, as, as you've mentioned before, one of the things that you get uh, when you sort of create a nation-state, as, as Germany attempted to do in 1870 or 71, um, and of course Ireland famously did this in, in, in the early 20th century, is that in order to define what we are, we must also define what we are not. Mm. Um, and so there was a clear movement of that in Germany during this time, is that you know, if this is who we are, we must clearly define what we are not. So what, what, you, what you get in some of the things I'm looking at for my comprehensive exams is there's a tremendous amount of coverage from Austria. Because it's a, it's a Munich-based newspaper Vienna is almost as close to Munich as Berlin is um, in, the, in, in the late 19th century. It might even be more accessible to a certain extent, although I'm not sure. Um, and so I do think there's a very clear drive by the Germans. We are not you know, Austrian. We are not English. We are definitely not French. You yeah. know? And, and here are our delineating uh, conceptions of ourselves in terms of sport. Um, and yet rowing seems to snake its way through un- unimpeded it becomes part of what we are as... it becomes it becomes a part of germany yeah. which is which is fascinating and it is one of the more successful uh early olympic sports mm. uh, in german history which is something fascinating that you know you wouldn't think about auto- automatically um there's not a lot of evidence of sort of singular standout german figures like there would have been for the Americans, the Australians, or the English, where you have sort of these legendary single-skull figures who sort of stand head and shoulders above the rest. Um, But there is a, to not stereotype too much, there's a tremendous workman-like camaraderie about uh, the the early German crews. Um, So efficiency. Yeah. (laughs) um, um, Tremendously mechanical, tremendously efficient. Uh, Humorless. Um, uh, And uh, uh, which is incredible to to read these narratives against mm. uh, some of the the existing pieces, and one of the things that I'm that I know will feature into the dissertation at some point because Dr. Todd is on it, so of course it will feature in at some point is the role of women in these early sport clubs, yeah. and there is some evidence that especially in in Hamburg and in in sort of upper parts of the Rhineland, you know, in Dortmund and Essen and Cologne in particular, um, that women in particular, girls, are afforded an opportunity to do this at a fairly young age. Hmm. Um, you know, and that they are allowed to participate in these types of uh, school clubs, which uh, really may not have even been present in England uh, to a certain extent. You've spoken to um, Lisa Taylor, I mean, of yes. the BSSH, who's... Yes. Doing comparable work on women in rowing in England. She is doing tremendous work um, about 
female oarsmen, uh, female oarswomen, <laughs> pardon, pardon me, Lisa, um, in England in the, in sort of the post-war era. Yeah. And some of her stuff is just incredible. I believe she was awarded by Ishbis yeah, uh, fairly right. recently. Uh, congratulate, belated congratulations to her. Um, and, uh, and her work is, is incredible. Mm. Um, and if I can offer a helpful analysis of looking at, you know, some of the earliest indications of just women being allowed to row, whether it's formalized or, or what have you, and whether it's just, you know, hey, you're eight years old and here's sort of a rickety old boat, go out and splash around for a couple of hours and come back in, um, which is counterintuitive as it sounds, it's a fairly prominent German model. Yeah. Um, it's free play, which is not something we really associate with with the Germans all that much. But it shows how like ingratiated it became into German culture that they would offer it out in a way that maybe wasn't comparable within England tremendously so and it seems to have rather quickly won the approval of uh, what we might call the higher ups in educational pedagogy Mm. Um, and to a certain extent there's the rowing myth it's like oh if you're good at rowing you must be a good scholar which clearly is not true you've proven it Um, you've proven it well there's a certain amount of luck that goes along with that Um, (laughs) but clearly there's there's evidence that uh, even by the 18 mid 1870s that the the German higher ups in education were clearly believers in sort of the educational value of rowing in a way that really was not afforded to either gymnastics or to football. Um, which to me is fascinating. Mm. Is how, <laughs> to a certain extent, does, does this become well, yeah, reality? Why, why rowing or not? Exactly. And so I think that... I think it has a great story to tell historians. Mm. Is that, and number one, the sheer lack of intellectual rigor on rowing in the sport history field is just a little surprising in general, especially since we're all supposed to be really smart. (laughs) Um, But I think what it does is it offers a much more nuanced picture of what the sporting world really looked like in the middle of the 19th century in Europe. Mm. And there was a tremendous amount of transcultural integration in what we might call the pre-Olympic era, sort of the the post-formalization era, so you're probably like, what, 1780s? I'm sure there's a real term for it. Um, I like your term. We'll go with We'll go with that. Um, well, and you're a growing academic, so like inventing stuff until you realize that somebody else has already done it <laughs> is, is, is sort of the game. Um, but we, you know, I've been kind of picking away at it consistently, and every time I, I chip away at it, there seems to be something else there, mm. which I think is as a young researcher is probably the most encouraging thing you can possibly do is um, you just need a nugget. You know, you know so, something yeah. uh, every month, every week. It's like, great. There's that little sliver that's going to keep me hanging on for the yeah. next, for the next month. And on that optimistic note <laughs> on PhD graduate work, I'll end by saying thank you again to Alec Hurley. I'll in- make sure that there's biographical information included in the podcast. I will provide uh, it for you. Description. Thank you very much. Uh, because you do not want me to write that up on. <laughs> and yes, thanks everyone listening back across the pond in Great Britain and Ireland. And hopefully here's to many more US-based uh, sport and history podcasts. Thank you, Alec. Thank you for having me, Connor.
Well, I feel like it'd be childish of me not to say thank you to Connor for a fantastic interview there with Alec. And I really do hope it's the first of many more to come while Connor's uh, seeing out his tenure at Tex in Texas. Uh, in the real world, uh, as opposed to the digital world, uh, we do have a seminar coming up at the IHR on the 2nd of December. Uh, Professor Kai Schiller will be talking about the German-Jewish athlete Alex Nathan, who uh, made his career between the wars in Germany, obviously a very, uh, a very politically hot time, um, but kind of continuing the German theme after what Alex, Alex was talking about there. If you've enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe to the podcast on various uh, podcast apps. So we're now on iTunes, uh, CastBox, and I think we're on Spotify as well. I'm pretty sure we are. So uh, have a look on one of those uh, podcast hosts if you want to keep in touch with new episodes. You can also look at the podcast homepage, which will be listed um, with this podcast on whatever device uh, you're listening to us on. Uh, but until next time, uh, thanks for listening, and uh, I really do hope you tune in again. Goodbye. Thank you.